Once in high school, I played a supporting role in a theater production at a neighboring school. Something off Play Scripts Incorporated, very Peter Pan meets Doctor Who, nothing you'd know. I played Umbrella Man. It wasn't the most important role. His name was Umbrella Man. But he had his scenes, had far more lines than you'd expect from the name Umbrella Man. It was fun. I had a great time. The playwright of our production lived nearby and came to see us perform. He held a Q&A before the show, and I asked him what inspired him to write Umbrella Man into the show. He told us sometimes, early in the writing process, you make decisions out of necessity more than inspiration. Something in the plot needs to happen, you need to connect moment A to moment B, give someone a scene partner, cover a costume change, you write something in to help that along. You hope you'll think of a way to tie it into larger themes or the narrative. Sometimes it just sits there, a bare utility you can't turn your back on and you have to live with now. A load-bearing beam in an awkward part of the floor plan that you try not to look at. That was Umbrella Man. My fun time was his eyesore. Anyway, today we're going to talk about Indigo. Because when I was a kid, comics were good and totally art, and why did you rob me of my waifu, Judd Winnick, you pompous- Hello, listeners. Welcome to this podcast space. I'm your host, Fox the Jackal. Welcome to the Audio Parlor. Episode 4 This episode is a discussion of select material pertaining to the DC Comics character Indigo, alias Brainiac 8, spanning publications from 2003 to 2005 and beyond. A full bibliography will be provided in the description with prejudice. The parlor wishes to issue a content warning for sexual content and the briefest mention of fictionalized Satanism. Indigo first appears in Titan slash Young Justice Graduation Day, written by Judd Winnick. This three-issue event miniseries was crafted to end two old superhero books, start up two new superhero books, and generally put butts into figurative seats for a good old coliseum showing of pointless death and violence. It's not a great book, and I don't want to talk about it. Indigo debuts with no explanation or origin, a blue robot with hot pink hair, and inadverted kindling to set this hay bale ablaze. Indigo as we will come to know her has no relation to this event. Indigo is less an agent in the story of Graduation Day, and more a manifestation of the event's need for forward action. Welcome to the modern age of comics. Introductions are messy, and context is continuity is an abyss. And this is only 2003. One of the books to arise from Graduation Day was called The Outsiders, also written by Judd Winnick. The Outsiders were going to be hunters. They weren't a family unit like the Titans. They were going to be gritty, realistic superheroes with funding and paychecks, heroes who don't take or or from anybody. Hmm. Interesting. So the team is assembled. You've got the girl brawler, the newbie, the veterans already chummy with each other. And in walks Indigo. She's a good guy now. Apparently. What the hell is 
that thing doing here? I figured you'd react like this. We reprogrammed her. Been training, programming, and drilling her for months. Besides, this was her idea. The microwave oven has independent thought. Wonderful. I wish to make amends. What? I have no recollection of any existence prior to my reactivation. I do, however, understand what I have done. And whether you believe it or not, I have desires. At the moment, my greatest is to serve humanity. I can never make up for what I have done, but I can at least help. Think on this. Who better for you to lead? A human whose well-being you fear endangering? Or me, a synthetic organism that you'd prefer ground to dust and sent into space? I can be a perfect soldier. Don't you agree? This is a foundational moment. This is when we functionally meet Indigo, the mysterious blue robot girl from the future, as a bona fide character in a narrative. I cannot stress enough, in graduation day she spoke in dry, broken computer code and acted under pre-programmed directives. Here she is written as assertive, socially intelligent, driven, sentient. It's unexpected, compared to both her previous appearance and her niche as a robot in a world with few intelligent robots, and I think it's actually something of a radical presentation. There is a trope common to fiction called Pinocchio Syndrome. It's when an artificial being in some narrative universe wants to emulate or maybe become human. Star Trek fans will recognize this in Data and his never-ending quest for eccentricity. This trope is often coupled with some form of fantastical bigotry, systemic or otherwise. Other characters treat the artificial being as less than human. In her introduction to the Outsiders team, Indigo is disparaged as an object. Her autonomy is expected to match that of a microwave oven. And so we're set up to expect a stock Pinocchio character, but she... blows past the insinuations entirely. She isn't ignorant. She knows her authenticity is doubted. She just doesn't care. Whether you believe it or not, I have desires. If anything, she turns her inhuman status into a rhetorical strength to secure her place on this no-nonsense, no-feelings-allowed professional big-boy team. It's not a perfect example of an approach to, say, discrimination in the workplace. It's not the most socially conscious depiction of how a minority figure might have to push for acceptance and equal footing. But it's pretty good for a comic book from 2003. I like her. She's got moxie. I like her already. Over the first several months of the Outsiders publication, Indigo receives her share of character development. She is precise. I don't think we can hold off a thousand of these gorilla soldiers for much longer. There are approximately 826 gorillas currently engaged in battle. She is pedantic, with what must be some handy databases on call. Human meddlers. And she is just the biggest, most affable nerd. I wouldn't let Grace get to you too much, Indigo. She's got issues. That is quite all right. Although I do not possess what is conventionally recognized as feelings, I do understand them on many levels. And I agree with everyone on the team when you call Grace a real bitch. In terms of utility as a superhero, Indigo is the full package. She can navigate databases with both the processing power of a computer and the ingenuity of a human user. She can hack. She has force fields and energy beams. She's, she's just a solid asset to the team. 
She has every skill and every confidence in her role as a superhero, and she even manages to self-actualize in her spare time. Say, how come the blueberry gets paid? What does she need with coin? I desire a great many things that require currency. I enjoy dance clubs, movies, watercolor painting. I find particular pleasure in doing laundry. What movies do you like? I'm particularly fond of silent pictures. Buster Keaton, Chaplin. I enjoy Harold Lloyd most of all. It's lovely stuff. And it may not be fully clear because I don't wish to reproduce it, but a lot of this book, a lot of the writing is kind of garbage. I don't hate on writer Judd Winnick as much as some people, but I understand and share some common criticisms. Is he a bad writer? No. There are some sequences in Outsiders, written in third-person narration, I enjoy very much. Nice build-up and execution, coinciding well with the visual plotting. There's one sequence where he pits the hubris of modern man against a skydiving gorilla. Classic jollies to be had there. Is he bad at dialogue? Here? Kinda, yeah. A lot of established and nuanced characters get muddied out into a stock, repetitive banter of stoic guy who snarks versus jokester guy who quips. It's lame, and I wish he'd think of a third character. And oversexed lady doesn't count. Is he gratuitous, a shock jock at the writer's chair? In this book, oh yeah. Any villain-centric scene without heroes in this book is guaranteed garbage. Boring at best, and unbearably, adolescently distasteful at worst. These scenes generally add nothing to the plot, and read like the boys in the back room at WonderCon got drunk one night and wanted to prove that they were the freest free thinkers to log on to Reddit today. Not 4chan, though. Gotta keep it glossy. My point is that for all the book's flaws, and it does have flaws, Indigo is a bright spot in The Outsiders for me. There's a depth and sincerity she is allowed in spite of, though in all likelihood intentionally in contrast to, the faux edginess the rest of the book is going for. But she's not done yet, oh no sir. If we're really to see Indigo realize the heights, the alternative realness, the glory and tragedy of this kawaii femme metale, we have to talk about shift. Or metamorpho. But really shift. Metamorpho had existed in comics for decades prior to The Outsiders, and he had actually served on prior iterations of The Outsiders' team, but had seen little use across the DC comic line since 1997, when he had entered something resembling a coma after barely surviving a satellite's fall to Earth. One thing to remember about Metamorpho is that he and those like him aren't exactly human. Exposure to an Egyptian artifact mutated him into an elemental shapeshifter, making his body a little gummy and bizarre. I think it was Judd Winnick himself who once wrote that his body now had the fortitude and consistency of chicken soup. So the act of atmospheric re-entry... I mean, it didn't kill him, but he lost a fair bit of mass on the way down. This Outsiders book establishes that most of his bodily chunks were recovered and returned to him during his dormant period. But one particular chunk began to act on its own. Specifically, that chunk grew into a humanish form, rejoined the superhero community, got an apartment, and was recruited to the new Outsiders team while he sorted out what he assumed was trauma-induced amnesia. 
It was six issues in before anyone realized the mistake. The original Metamorpho was pissed. A whole issue of The Outsiders was spent debating what should be done with the duplicate, whether it should be allowed to live or be reassimilated into the original. Indigo was actually the first to defend his right to life, assaulting Metamorpho when she detected efforts to begin the assimilation. She was the only one to show the duplicate compassion during an, understandably, rapid-onset existential crisis. Eventually, he was allowed to continue as an individual. He changes his name to Shift. Shift and Indigo had shown some polite camaraderie prior to this revelation, but I guess learning you're not what you thought you were leaves you searching for connection. Issue 8 of the series shows the two fraternizing out-of-work facilities, leaving a cinema screening of Buster Keaton's Steamboat Bill Jr., because of course they were. Indigo, you've seen this movie six times. You've got an actual photographic memory. Doesn't it bore you? No. For each viewing, I suppress the memory of the film thus enabling me to view it again for the first time. I will say that I enjoyed this viewing most of all. How can that be? I was seated next to you. <laughs> Thanks. How are you adjusting to your newfound existence? Do you find it less upsetting that you are not actually Rex Mason, but a rogue offspring of his chaotic cellular makeup? From anyone else, that would seem insensitive. Was it? I meant no harm. You are a blank slate. I suppose I am. I am a blank slate as well. Yes, we are quite a pair. Our similarities gives me great comfort. Yeah, well, I guess they do for me too. Didn't you say you like bowling? I do. To aid in fair competition with others, I adjust my motion stabilizer to throw off my balance, causing imperfection in my performance. It allows me to suck at bowling. <laughs> Good. You sucking at bowling, it is. And there you have it. Two souls out in the cold find each other. Indigo, knowing exactly who she is and content in that state, reaches out to share time and joys with another like herself at the start of their self-discovery. It's beautiful. It's aspirational. It's stuck with me all these years. I just wish it wasn't in the issue with the satanic death rituals and orgies. <sighs> That's the game they're playing, I suppose. Time passes, like sands from the young and the restless. The outsiders continue their work, Indigo is competent to the point of carrying the team at times, and Shift is experimenting with the limits of his powers. Several storylines pass by without much insignificant development for Indigo. Some of these stories are quite baffling. Oh, to be a fly on that wall when they agreed to a crossover with America's Most Wanted, John Walsh cameo and all. Indigo and Shift grow closer. Their relationship becomes romantic, then sexual, then very sexual. I'm pleased to announce their double-spread sex scene in the company Jet is still posted to the Cheesecake subreddits to this day. Thanks for that, boys. I didn't mind it, then or now. It's actually more tasteful than I remembered, not less. Their love is framed as an act of expression and creation. Shift expanding to fill the space with crystals, plate mail, a rose, a tree, linseed oil and styrofoam, solid, liquid, and gas swirling and crashing onto the dashboard. I was undoubtedly too young to see this the first time around, but if I was going to see a sex scene in comics, this is the one, ladies and gentlemen. They embrace each other, unabashedly. 
they have no shame in their time together. Even if onlookers might. Just a bit. One time, we overhear their conversation in the afterglow, lying in bed in some unknowable twilight hour. It's a good time. A better time than what's to come. Indigo retrieves a gift she's been saving for him. What's this? What does it look like? It looks like a rose, but it's not. I mean, I can tell by the molecular structure that... I knew you would know it was not organic. I made it for you. (laughs) Thank you. It's an amazing likeness. I'm not sure anyone else would be able to tell. Do not say that it's not real. It is real. It is as real as you are, or as I am. Neither one of us was created through common convention, but it does not make us any less real, less alive. So, this is a symbolic gift. I thought it was just pillow talk. Now you are spoiling it. Sorry. Thank you. For the rose as well as the sentiment. I love you, you know? I know. I love you. And it's real. Judd Winnick wrote this. I can't in good conscience call him a bad writer when he gave us a romance like this. And look. To be real for a second, as a fan of the comics What is Queer, I have to be prepared for a lot of bad faith. I have to steel myself in cynicism and lofty distance and prepare myself for a lot of toxic comic bros to one day find me and tell me I'm delusional in seeing a Judd Winnick creation no one else in the world gives a damn about be so affecting upon me. You think too much. There's nothing that deep here. Well, get out sometime, nerd. Locate your sense of humor sometime. And sure, basic training to the gays. My hide is tough. But this one, I can't let go. Deep in this book of gritty cursing and shock value realism, there's a story of a girl named Indigo. Trusted by no one. Damned from the start who lived her life authentically and joyfully in defiance of the grim dark around her. She was who she was, and as she grew ever more into herself, she had the strength to raise another outsider up with her. That isn't nothing. And then Indigo turns crazy, and she's evil, and she dies. The writer tells us she was never real to begin with, and we were all fools to think she was a hero. So, my drag, I guess. The Insiders is a Teen Titans Outsiders crossover event two years into their publication, and it is effectively a sequel to Graduation Day in both tone and content. A lot gets revealed, and there's more fighting than, you know, coherent events happening in an interesting plot, but Indigo is essentially overwritten with a sadistic, genocidal alter ego named Brainiac 8. She is your destruction. Literally, she says, I am your destruction, out loud. She, she is that much of a card-carrying villain now. Her friends and the outsiders worry they've been tricked, that 
She's been lying, and they were idiots to ever reactivate her, let alone trust her, and she's like, yeah. Sweet Little Indigo was a surface subroutine designed to hide Brainiac 8 among the superheroes, and they were totally idiots to trust her, because now Brainiac 8 is going to murder, kill them, die them, like the soggy meatbags of organic flesh racism, racism, flesh racism that they are. Brainiac 8 is racist to organics, and she has to die. So, what do I do with this? What am I sp- How- how do I reconcile? I know! Let's be women about it and work together on this caper. Come on, let's go. So Brainiac 8 is a Kaluan robot from the future. Kalu, that's a planet, sure. And she came back in time to kill a Titan and thereby secure Kaluan domination in Kalu a Kalu was home to the original Brainiac. Okay, still a weird choice to have her fighting to ensure Kaluan domination. Brainiac isn't exactly a loyalist to any Kaluan race. Who's in charge of Kalu sure these days? Are they organics? Are they machines? I've read something about computer tyrants, but Brainiac 1 is fleshy and Brainiac 5 is fleshy a thousand years later. Okay, Wait, hold the Brainiac phone. How many Brainiacs are there again? I know there's OG, his clone 2. I think the clone had a son. And Kalu was mostly known for, like, shrinking technology. So How does that reconcile with expansionism? Wait, why do, do they, they even care about Kalu and politics? Over They've them? Do they never shown signs of imperialism as a culture in the DC space operas. At least nowhere near the levels of the Dominators, or the Scions, or the Daxmites, or the Clundians, or the Ronians, or the Thanagarians. The it's not like we don't hear about them. Wow, Ron and Thanagar are at war in 2005. It's part of this whole universe-spanning buildup to Infinite Crisis. And there was Psycho Mother 4 to Recurring Hero 5, and did 6 even exist yet? I thought this was 6. You'd think we'd put 6 and not 1 as grandfather to 8. Okay, so there's 1 and 2 and 3, and 4 and 5 and 6 are now 8, and 12 and 13 and 4 17, and there's 1 and 2 and 3, and 4 and 5 and 6 are now 8, and 12 and 13 and 4 17, and there's 1 and 2 and 3. I don't understand. She already killed her target. Why is she still here? Why is any of this happening? No, no, no. You're not listening! I don't have control. I found one pathway back and was able to seize higher function, but she's fighting her way back. I will not be able to do this again. She's going to block it. Indigo, if you have control... You have to end this. She won't stop. But if this is really... She'll make me watch. She'll murder you and the Outsiders, and the Titans, and everyone in her way, and she'll keep me trapped inside her, watching it all happen. Shift, please. Don't make me watch. I don't want to kill anymore, please. Let me go as I am, as I want to be. Indigo of the Outsiders was a load-bearing beam in an imperfect human writer's floor plan. Early in the writing process, he made a decision out of necessity more than inspiration, and he carried that eyesore along for the next two years of his creative work. He made do. He developed Indigo into a character I loved for reasons completely disconnected from her intended role. But he had an overarching plan and I guess he and the powers that be had to stick to it. What developed on the journey couldn't survive the destination. Hey, that's showbiz, kid. I've heard it said 
that character agency and authenticity in narrative analysis are a fool's game, because both are false aesthetics, forever mutable by the author. If I could leave my general audience with anything, keep that in mind, cherish the works you like, and don't be afraid to imagine them a better way. The capital A author might have been killed by a Frenchman in 1967, but I don't think that's sunken into some communities out there. You have just as much power to judge the value and esteem of a work of fiction on your own terms. It's okay. Sometimes they were wrong. It's yours too. And if the comic fan sphere ever finds this... Do me a favor, go change Indigo's wiki entries. Too many of them effectively list her as Brainiac 8, and that's not how she should be remembered in most contexts. She wasn't always the sweet girl who loved bowling and laundry and a man named Shift, but she was usually answering to Indigo. Give her that respect. Thank you. It's 5 a.m. Far too late, I know. I, I was on a roll getting this done. I've, I've had a good time with it. Looking back, though, being done with the editing except for this outro, I think Garth Marenghi is back on my shoulder again. This is just episode four, and I've learned so much through this, but the writing... I worry I've left something too deep in the subtext in favor of a usual path of writing. Trans rights are human rights? Trans rights are more applicable than we know when we really need them. And I think a story like Indigo's can be interpreted in ways that convey that lesson. I leave it as an exercise for the listener. I'm I'm so sorry, I will learn. You could have seen it, Mr. Police. I gave you all the clues. But credits, um... This episode of The Audio Parlor was written, directed, and produced by myself, Fox the Jackal. Additional voices were provided by Jimmy Ellenberg. Thanks so much, Jimmy. Very much of a trooper there. The song in the concluding segment was Sonic from the Killer Album by Patricia Taxon. That and all other music was used with permission. Audio was sampled from the film Vegas in Space, which I do not own, but I do highly recommend. Uh, last statement, go to YouTube, go to Caitlin Dowdy's YouTube channel, Ask a Mortician, and watch Trans Bodies in Death. It was an inspiration for this episode and contains a lot of useful information, not just for trans people, but for anyone looking to take charge of their affairs. Thank you very much. I hope you have a pleasant day. Goodbye. Thank you.